tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after show entertainment. Johnson. TV, the destination for TV superfans, producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows, interviewing celebrities and showrunners, and bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hey there, AfterBuzz fans. My name is Megan Salinas. I'm your host tonight for The Voice Of, where we have a very, very special guest joining us tonight, Rob Paulson. Hi, Megan. Nice to see you. It is very, very nice to have you here. Thank you. Hello, (laughs) Megan. Hello, (laughs) Nurse Megan. Oh, this is going to be fun. Oh, yeah. It's going to be pretty wacky, honey. (laughs) I can tell you already. And there's no booze involved. (laughs) Not yet. Not yet. Maybe. That's right. Oh, yeah. This is water. Bummer. Um, if you guys haven't already done so, please subscribe to AfterBuzz on YouTube, iTunes, rate, leave a comment. We love hearing from you guys. And if you guys happen who happen to be watching live, uh, we might be able to keep an eye on the live chat on YouTube, but we will definitely be keeping an eye on the hashtag, the voice of, on Twitter. So if you guys have any questions for our very special guest, and if my wireless reception permitting, uh, feel free to go ahead and submit them. I'll keep an eye out for them. Thank you. So, at the risk of sounding like a broken record, for maybe those who don't know the story yet, Mm. how did you get interested in being a performer? Well, after being in prison, uh, for (laughs) surprise, we're in a locked room. (laughs) No, I I came out here in the late 70s, ostensibly, to do TV and movie live action uh, performing, having had a background uh, primarily as a singer who started doing theater. Um, I, I... came out like the rest of the folks to do, you know, what we were here to do. I didn't come out just to do cartoons. I certainly loved animation, grew up watching Rocky and Bullwinkle and uh, Looney Tunes and and uh, Flintstones, Jetsons, Johnny, everything. But uh, when I got here, it doesn't it didn't take me long to realize that there are a lot of average looking white guys with SAG cards in LA. <laughs> and um, unless you're lucky enough to be on a, a series um, have some steady work, whatever. It's, you know, it's it's like it still is. It's it's a grind. No problem. I expected that. I'd had a relatively large amount of experience for my age when I came here as a result of touring around the United States and Canada and Mexico, Panama. I'm sorry. It just happens. <laughs> oh, look, you're smiling. Huh, what a nice thing. Um, so I was doing live action and uh, TV and commercials and movies. And uh, in about the mid-80s, I had the opportunity to read for some cartoons, which were G.I. Joe and Transformers, were the first cartoons I did. And it doesn't take one long to realize that, wow, this is great. I'm working. And moreover, I was not limited by the way I looked. Um, Nobody cared. In fact, it was more about what I could bring to the party and and not be constrained with the way I looked. So when you start getting hired to do things like um, Haji and Johnny Quest and saying Sim Sim Salabim and look, race a pterodactyl, <laughs> um, then you kind of go, well, this is great. I'm not I'm not limited by being a, an average looking white guy from Flint, Michigan. Um, so uh, it, it started to, to sort of take hold. And um, probably in about the early mid '90s, I just made the conscious decision. Uh, to say, you know what, this is a great gig, and I'm acting more than I've ever acted. I get to sing. 
I get to sing in character. I get to do dialects. And moreover, than, and more important than that, I think, is that I get to work with people who are so gifted. And you mentioned earlier some of the people that you spoke, you've spoken to. They are the most clever, talented, fearless, and completely unpretentious actors whom you'll ever meet. So I am living a dream, man. I'm just a, I'm a factory worker in the dream factory. I'm a blue-collar worker, man. I'm, I'm a hired gun, and I get to go to work every day and essentially do what got me in trouble in seventh grade. So, so you mentioned you have a background in music. Are mm-hmm. you classically trained? Yeah, technically, I guess I am. I, I learned to sing well and read music in high school, and it was all classical music. It was all choral music and, and um, um, uh, madrigals and things like that, very close harmonies. Um, and yeah, I learned to sing well. I mean, I learned to sing well as an op- is subjective, but I, I learned to sing the right way so that I was able to preserve my voice. Um, but man, uh, the most fun I had was being in rock and roll bands. It, you know, it, you kind of go, wow, I learned to sing and I read music, but the chicks dig you if you're in a rock and roll <laughs> band, even if you suck, you know. So that was a, a, a huge thing. And then my parents were very supportive. I have a brother and two sisters, and we were all. Uh, in performing, my parents are, hey, you can listen to as much Led Zeppelin and The Who and The Beatles as you like, but you also have to listen to Prokofiev and Mahler and Shostakovich, and I did, and so to this day, I still love classical music a lot, and I, um, um, and then I learned to sing in character, and that was just something that was an awful lot of fun. It's just a passion I have because I was inspired by the Pythons and Peter Sellers and the Goons and Jonathan Winters and Lucille Ball and all these folks who did great character work. So that was just something I did because it made my soul happy, you know. Um, little did I know that 10, 15, 20 years later, it would become part and parcel of, of what would essentially pay my mortgage. So, uh, yeah, I, I, my background is classical and then rock and roll and pop music. And now it's just singing like Yakko or whatever. <laughs> Who knows? A turtle or a dove or, a, you know, I'll just sing as whatever, yeah. That's fantastic. You mentioned that you grew up and you were a fan of well, a lot I hadn't really of- grown up. That's a strong, <laughs> strong phrase, Megan. When you were young. Yes. Uh, when you were a child yes. there, <laughs> you were a big fan of a lot of these classic animated shows. Yeah. When you got into the business, what was it like getting to be a part of a lot of the things that you grew up with, like Johnny Quest, which, by the way, the, the show that was in the 90s was awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I love this girl. Where am I? She's fabulous. Um uh, I uh, well, see, I remember the original Johnny Quest. It was a it was a Friday night show on ABC, a network primetime show. And Johnny Quest in the original show was Tim Matheson. Um, of course, I even though I'm old, I was not old enough to have worked in that show, even if had I been in California. Um, but when there was a second iteration of the show, I got hired. Gordon Hunt, God bless him, at Hanna Barbera, hired me to be Haji, and that was a huge thrill. Primarily because the fellow who is Dr. Quest was the original Dr. Quest, Don Messick, who was also the voice of Scooby-Doo and, um, you know, Boo-Boo the Bear and uh, uh, Ranger, you know, the Mr. Ranger on Yogi Bear and, and Papa Smurf and all this stuff. So I walked into the studio the first day and I hear Don Messick say, careful, Johnny. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my God, that's the real guy. So it, it is it is a... A really impactful thing when you get to work with folks who have iconic voices, um, and it happened. I mentioned earlier I got to work with Mel Blanc and, and June Foray and all these folks whom I'd listened to 
for years and years and years, from the time I was eight or nine years old, you know. So to to be in a room with them and then to get to work on something that was uh, sort of iconic, so certainly for me as a kid was huge thrill, huge. Yeah. And speaking of like the cast that you work with, you first of all, your resume is a million miles long. I almost didn't know where to start with this interview. It's that extensive and great. But with a lot of the cast that you work with, you worked with a lot of amazing casts. Yeah. Do you prefer to work with an ensemble? Always. <laughs> Always. Um th- things have changed a bit. Um I- the, the the nature of a lot of the shows is because there are a lot of folks who still do on-camera stuff, like with the new version of Ninja Turtles on Nickelodeon. Um, Sean Astin is Raphael and Seth Green is Leo. Uh, and they're both, they both have very vital on-camera careers. So often they're not available. And Seth, of course, is producing Robot Chicken all the time, so he's gone doing stuff. Um, but when we're all together, it's always preferable. Um, the shows that have been most important in my life, Turtles, The Tick, Animaniacs, uh, Pinky and the Brain, Hysteria, The Mask, always, always had the, the whole cast there. And, um, you know, it, it's not a surprise. We all feed off each other. And often the stuff that happens in the recording session, especially when we start to improvise, gets can be a little blue <laughs> and not appropriate. But regardless of whether it ends up in the show, the energy that's created amongst the cast members definitely shows up in the, in the product on the screen. It's I'd always rather be with the other actors. Uh, you know, high tide lifts all boats, and and people like Billy West and Maurice Lamarche and Tress McNeil, um, they, they just they make me better. It's it's uh, selfish too because I'm better when those folks are around me. So do you ever walk into a recording session, just look at the cast members around you, and go, "We're not getting out of here on time"? Oh, honey, <laughs> all the time, especially with guys like John DiMaggio, and <laughs> Kevin Michael Richardson, as you mentioned earlier when we were speaking. Yeah, these guys are so talented, and and often um, it's hard to rein them in. And and I think the producers, maybe as a result of a time constraint, you know, we have to get done in a certain time frame. But they like to let them go because what they what these actors do and what they're able to come up with and their improvisational skills are so outrageous that I think the producers like to let them go as much as they can. You never really know when you get some really great nugget uh, that that um, feeds into you know the the, the script. Um, it happened a lot on Pinky and the Brain and Animaniacs because the shows were so beautifully written. Uh, Turtles is now too. I mean, it's always been well written, but these guys, Brandon Allman and Ciro Nielli, who are producing the new Ninja Turtles show, have got such a great staff. And often the scripts are so solid that they inspire you to come up with more stuff because they write specifically for your character. They they know how you work. And um, yeah, it, it, we have many times when we have to somebody has to crack the whip <laughs> and get us back on track. It's uh, it's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> That's the show, really. So, speaking of Ninja Turtles, yeah. the, the series that was revived in 2012. Which is, you said you love. <laughs> I do. Thank I you. I love it so much. Uh, I'm not caught up yet, so don't any of you tell me how season no three spoilers, ends. No spoilers, dude. No spoilers. I need to get caught up. Um, but congratulations Thank on the you. start of season four. Thank you. What are I know, obviously, you can't give away any spoilers, but what are you most excited about for season four? Well, as a fan uh, uh, of not only the show, but of this particular actor, David Tennant is on the show. <laughs> yeah, who is not only the 10th Doctor Who, and frankly, I'm not a big Whovian. I don't know much about Doctor Who, but I first saw David Tennant in um, Broadchurch, a fantastic show. And apparently, uh, you know, they were kicking around the idea of offering David Tennant this particular role in the show on the season four, and 
And the general consensus was, well, he's David Tennant. He's not going <laughs> to – so they said, well, we'll just approach him. He's a turtle fanatic. <laughs> so it's like, absolutely. I'd be happy to do the turtles, you know, instead of broad church. That is um, a very good impression. Well, thank you, honey. That's how I make my living. So, um, But uh, he is uh, – he they record him out of uh, UK. He's Scottish. I don't know if he lives in Scotland. So I've not had the pleasure of meeting him. But boy, oh, boy, it, what a thrill to have him on. And then, you know, Ron Perlman. I've known Ron for years, but – Boy, he's always been a terrific actor, but man, after Sons of Anarchy, his, <laughs> he's just a really prominent actor. Um, and so Ron's on the show, and uh, um, uh, Peter Stomari and uh, Lucy Lawless came in. Uh, Zelda Williams, Robin Williams, beautiful, sweet daughter, is uh, recurring on the show. Just a really good group of actors. Um, and it, it speaks to the sort of power of that franchise they just love to have it on they have no they can get anybody they want it's a real joy well, to see that that is so yeah. exciting you will love it. when you get caught up and you start watching season four it'll it's it's really cool the end of season three will blow your mind well start watching doctor who with david Tennant. it is like watching is it really okay it is like watching a live action cartoon yeah he he is really something and and the work he's doing as this particular character on the on the show now is uh he plays a character called fugitoid and he's just kicking the hell out of it it's just you can tell he just has so much joy in him he's fantastic that is an excellent word for it and i'm sorry i'm gonna have to move my phone we're getting a little bit of feedback okay uh would you be able to move your phone a little oh sure absolutely (laughs) i think it's mine but no problem just to be safe sure so talking again about ninja turtles uh what are what are your thoughts on what the current producers have done with the material because it's like they we were talking about it a little bit before the show it's like they've taken a lot of different aspects of turtles through the years and have created something that is essentially a big turtle fanatics dream just watching the show unfold well you you basically answered the question. That's exactly – you know, it is. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think the reason is because those guys and their crew are turtle freaks, turtle geeks, turtle nerds, um, I mean to the bone. And one can make the argument that this is the purest, most complete iteration of Ninja Turtles because the people who got the dough, the people who have the reins and they're driving the turtle van are folks who grew up being turtle fanatics. And um, I think that's why we get a huge fan base that are folks your age. You said your brother's a bit older than you. We get a lot of folks who are sort of, you know, in their mid-20s to mid-30s who grew up watching the original show on which I got to be Raphael with a 25-year gap. And they sort of say, my son was in, my son included. My son Ash is in, in the, the entertainment business, and he was a turtle nut like every other kid. And he said, yeah, well, you know, Dad, I'll, I'll watch it and give you my – and he watched four or five of them on Hulu and <laughs> said, God, this is fantastic. And it's because they're all people who grew up watching it. And so they respect the franchise. They are fans and they they get the mythology and the minutia and the nuance of all of that. Kevin Eastman, um, uh, who was one of the creators of Turtles, uh, said essentially the same thing. He was very involved in the new show um, when they were putting it together and um, – you know, he's like, wow, the guys that they're letting run this really get it. You know, so, I mean, even Sirenelli, who's the uh, the executive producer, his father had a pizza parlor in <laughs> Philadelphia. So he really is a turtle, a turtle nut. It's pretty amazing. You go into the turtle production offices and it's so sweet. The kids are all there with their turtle pillowcases on the wall and their, you know, 
old school Ninja Turtle <laughs> t-shirt. It's it's just lovely. It's really cool. So it must be a huge kick going to conventions oh. with the rest of the cast and just seeing both adults and children wearing t-shirts. It's fantastic. And we'll have a lot of people, as I said, who come in at, then they're 30 or 35 and they bring in their kids. Mom and dad are dressed as Leo and Raph and the kids are Donnie <laughs> and Mikey, you know, and maybe they got a picture of their dog dressed as Shredder. It's the most lovely thing. And, and in terms of, of, um, the iconic nature of the show, it's pretty unusual that you have something that really is popular um, uh, sort of cross-generationally um, where, you're, uh, where you have moms and dads who can't wait to watch it with their kids. You know, when my son was little, thank God he loved the Muppets and Big Bird. I could watch Sesame Street and the Muppets all day long. If I'd have had to watch Barney and Teletubbies, <laughs> I'd have blown my brains out. So if you can watch a show that with your kids and say, oh, my God, Ninja Turtles, that really gets me right smack dab in the, you know, in the, um, um, uh, my childhood, you know, <laughs> boom, it just nails me. But my kids love it too, and we can watch it together, and I, and I, and I enjoy it. So that happens a lot. It's, it's miraculous to see how many parents bring their kids in, and they're all turtle, just insane about turtles. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. You mentioned you hit the nail on the head. It's iconic, but kind of going off of that, uh, you've played a lot of iconic characters. Thank you. Are there any kind of more obscure characters you wish got more recognition? Well, there was a show that I did that never really made it to air. It was a um, uh, a show based on a uh, British comic book called Dan Dare, Pilot of the Future. Really interesting cast: Tim Curry and. Uh, um, uh, Julian Holloway, all British, Clive Rebel, all, I was the only non-Brit in the cast. Um, and I played this, you know, bad guy called this talking brain called the Mekon. And I thought it was very interesting. It just never got off the ground. We did 13 of them and that didn't do well. There's another show, the, um, in the early nineties, Jim Cummings, myself, Dan Castellaneta, uh, Debbie Derryberry, who was Jimmy Neutron, you know, we all did a show called, um, uh, Tasmania. It was a fantastic show, really good show, and it it was I mean, it did well. It was I think we did sixty five half hours, but it was not in that group that was produced by Steven Spielberg at Warner Brothers. So it didn't get. I don't think it got its due. It's a really good show. In fact, John Aston, who is Sean's father, um, was on that show as well. He and I got to play uh, uh, these two really stupid alligators that would always try to get after the Tasmanian devil. And that was where I got to know John Aston. And to this day, um, every time I see Sean, he's, oh, my dad said hi. And Mr. Aston is now teaching theater at Johns Hopkins. He has the, they have the John Aston Theater. He's dude probably, I don't know, his mid-80s now. But um, that was a great show, Tasmania. Um, you know, I, I, The Tick certainly has a, a really uh, dedicated following. I think it could have gone a couple more seasons. A very excellent show. Um, the uh, amazingly gifted Ben Edlund, who at the time was a precocious 22-year-old, um, really put together a very excellent show, very clever. And the live-action versions with um, uh, Pat Warburton as the tick are, are also really excellent. So there are a couple out there. But, you know, man, I, I'll tell you, Megan, I, I, I have been so incredibly fortunate um, to have had one or two really good shows, but the fact that I can still work pretty much every day is um, is just a, a huge gift. Pretty lucky guy. 
It's uh, you. You've also said before in in other interviews and in some of your seminars that uh, one of the really good ways to kind of create character voices is through really bad impressions. Exactly. So, good for you. Thank you. You've done your homework. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I try. I try. So I was wondering, which is your favorite? Which character is your favorite bad impression? Bad impression. Wow. I don't know that I have. I don't know that any of the. Well-known characters are bad impressions. I, I did a character that's a recurring role on the show called Ben Ten, and um, this is a great. This will be a great bit for um, the actors out there. Who uh, Billy West said something, and it's very true. He said, "You know, what's cool about voice actors is that they're fearless," and that's exactly right. Um, if you're in a position in which a producer says, "Hey, you know, I've heard you kind of do uh, Barney Fife." And we got this character that's kind of this bizarre character. Let me hear your Don Knotts. And so oh, I start doing my Don Knotts, and it's all right. It's not bad, but it's not perfect. And I said, well, you know, I can do it. But the guy who really does it is Jeff Bennett, who's the voice of Johnny Bravo and many other. Jeff Bennett is a, a marvelous impressionist. I'm an actor, but I'm not an impressionist. Maurice LaMarche, Kevin Michael Richardson. I mean, these guys are big-time impressionists. Um and so they said, well, no, let's hear what you got. So I did it. And I ended up getting, you know, 25 or 26 episodes with this half-assed impression <laughs> of Barney Fife because the producers were like, oh, no, we, we actually like that. We like it this way and maybe do a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that. So the point is that if I had been uh, self-conscious and said, oh, I'm not very good at that, well, I would have aced myself out of a whole lot of work. Um, and the thing that I think producers like about folks who do what we do is they like the fact that they can throw something at you and say, let me see what you got. Now they may say, mm, "Okay, well, you know, thank. Don't nah, we're going to go with somebody else?" But they like you to try and to uh, you know throw something at the wall and see what happens. Um, and you just never know. You never know when something is going to come out of that. Um, I did a show called Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, in which I got to be Carl Weezer. I'm so glad you're laughing. It's a drag when you throw out. <laughs> um, but that character was basically a a sort of even goofier, nerdier version of a character I did um, on a show called Goof Troop. Right? PJ. PJ, right? He's still kind of <laughs> like this, but he's bigger and kind of a doofus, right? <laughs> but Carl is a kind of the same placement with a lazy L and a little higher and a little more red. I mean, PJ was outgoing. Carl's, you know, kind of shy. But they're similar sounding characters. Um... And it was something that, you know, we were doing some stuff. And Steve Odekirk, who's the producer and creator of that show with a fellow named John Davis and kicking around some things. And I thought, God, you know, I've always liked that character, PJ. Maybe I could just make him a little smaller and really nerdy and <laughs> sad and goofy. And um, and it worked. And we did, you know, a movie and, and, and a couple, uh, 100 episodes of the show and then spun off with another show called um, Planet Sheen. And, it, and people love Carl Weezer. So uh, you, you just never know. So it really is about taking a shot and not being afraid to take a shot. Um, Robert Redford said something once that's really true. You can only be as good as you dare to be bad. And that's really true. Yeah, you never know what you'll accomplish. That's right. Nothing ventured. What's going to happen? <laughs> They're going to think you look at stupid? Dude, you're making cartoons at 60 <laughs> years old. You're already stupid. You know, don't worry about it. Yeah. So obviously you've, you've had years and years of experience doing this. But were there any things... Was there anything that you would do to actively hone your craft and actively constantly add more tools to your wheelhouse? Yeah, and I, let me just tell you, folks, at the beginning of this interview, Megan was concerned that she was going to be asking me the same questions. Your questions are very good. Oh, thank very you. thorough and excellent questions. Um, that uh, is true. I'm always 
always, always, always trying to put more arrows in my quiver. Always. I love to write um, parody songs because they were – I was inspired to do that by Mad Magazine. And when I was a kid and I stayed home and you know couldn't go to school – I didn't stay home and read Captain's Courageous. <laughs> I stayed home and read Famous Monsters of Filmland and Mad. And so all those guys, you know, Jack Davis and Mort Drucker and uh, Sergio Aragonis, all of those folks really inspired me a lot too. And so I write parody songs and I always um, come up with uh, you know, new characters that I try to do work. Yeah, really creepy. <laughs> uh, you never know because if you start to do that on the spur of the moment, you, you never know. Like, you know, it could be a new character. Or you could just say, security, I want this old man out of my studio now. Um, so I'm always working on that stuff. Um, I, uh, I've done a podcast for the last three or four years in which I get to, you know, sort of in-depth interview the people with whom I've worked on a regular basis, and and um, they're also very inspiring. But yeah, it's, it's, it's also self-preservation. There are so many good young actors and so many celebrities that are now doing animation that to keep myself competitive, I have to always, you know, hone my skills. Um, and uh, But it also is it, not and, but... It is always driven by passion. The truth is that were I doing something else for a living, I would still be playing in a band or doing theater or doing improv or something because I'm passionate about the stuff that I do. Uh, it just so happens that I've been able to get paid to do my passion. So I love making you know, new stuff, and I, I love cracking myself up. You know, <laughs> I'm by myself a lot in the car, so I hopefully I'm a good audience. So going off of that, you obviously enjoy making a lot of other people laugh, too. Who would you say is your biggest comedic inspiration or influence? If I had to pick one, I would probably say uh, Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers um, is a huge hero of mine. Uh, John Cleese, the Pythons, Maurice LaMarche, my friend the brain. And I got to go see John Cleese speak the other night at the Saban Theater. Um, John Cleese and the Pythons were enormously uh, influential. But Peter Sellers, um, I think the first time I saw Dr. Strangelove, I thought, wow, that, that's that's outrageous. And, you know, the three characters that he did in that show were so completely different and clearly defined. And it's no secret, you know, I think he I think he won an Oscar for being there. But, I mean, the point, he, he was Peter Sellers. But long before he became Peter Sellers, the movie star, he was in a, an outfit called The Goon Show. And, man, every time I think I'm getting good at my gig, I listen to old recordings of Peter Sellers doing um, impressions and writing songs and singing in character, doing dialects from every corner of the globe. Incredible timing. So yeah, Peter Sellers was a huge inspiration. But so was Carol Burnett, Jonathan Winters, whom I got to work with a lot. Um, Lucy, uh, a lot of um, uh, a lot of American comedians were very influential as well. Uh, but there was something about British comedy that just blew my mind, and and it's, I'll tell you what, there have been a number of shows that have, uh, that I've done that that, uh, in which I put those uh, that passion for that type of humor to good use, and it's gotten me a job. So when you're creating a character, what, obviously you've got the character description to go off of, but does it help when there's character um, cons like concept art, or do you mm -hmm. just like going with whatever feels right? Well, I, no, it always helps to see what the character looks like. Um, and uh, that generally is the way things work. Uh, when you get an audition, you'll generally get a, a two-dimensional rendering of the character in different 
views, happy, sad, mad, whatever type of, you know, um, and uh, a bit of a description of what they're looking for. The audition process now has changed a lot. My process hasn't changed, but the, the recording stuff and the audition process, it used to be in the old days that we would go and be in the same, you know, we'd all see each other in the lobby of a casting office and then we'd go in to read and they'd say okay Rob you hang around Jeff you go back outside Frank you come in and read with Rob and you bang up. now Rob you go outside let's bring in the and and so you got a chance not only to be with other actors but you got a chance to read the producers and read the room and my background is like a lot of us is you know being on stage and you get a chance to feel what's happening with the audience and you know really right away when it's not working and you know when it is and um so it's it's a drag now for me, and, and I would submit for other younger actors, it's a drag to not have the producers in front of you because you can't ask them questions. You get a little breakdown of what they're looking for. And so what I do is I give them what I believe they're asking for based on what they tell me, and then I try my own stuff uh, because my improvisational skills have gotten me a lot of work. And I'm still auditioning for whatever those people are going to be producing. And I've gotten jobs a year or two later where somebody will say, you know, you auditioned for this thing years ago that we were doing a Cartoon Network and what, what you did was so not right, but it was so interesting. And maybe it'll work for this thing and I'll end up getting a job then. So um, because I, I'm left to my own devices, uh, I have to sort of take the bull by the horns and audition with what I, as you said, what I feel is right based on my instincts and if I don't get the job, well, the odds are I'm not going to get the job anyway because the number of people that audition for every job are so astronomical. Um, I'm really grateful that I have a background because it's serving me well now. I, if I were starting now, man, it's – I mean they audition from you know, people all over the country sometimes. Um, so you know, there weren't – the internet and people didn't have home studios and YouTube and all that years ago. We would just all have to come to Hollywood and go audition at – Warner Brothers or Hanna-Barbera or Disney, and now it's um, a lot more people in the mix and a lot of celebrities. So um, I think it's important to have um, confidence in your ability to, to, to try to red flag yourself, do something that's going to make the producers go, wow, that is not exactly what we're looking for, but that's pretty interesting. Maybe we should go that direction. You know, it it's, it's helps to have that facility. Yeah, don't be afraid to take chances because, like you Good said, for you. It, right. it might come back later on. You exactly. never know, later on down the road. You never know. So swing for the fences, baby. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, you've worked with so many great people, actors and directors. Andrea and they're all Romano. assholes. Every one of them. <laughs> Every one of them. Whatever I said earlier, it's bullshit. They're all assholes. Bunch of jerks. They're a bunch of jerks, yeah. But um, is there anybody you haven't gotten the chance to work with that you would absolutely jump at the chance? Um yeah, in terms of people who are kind of my peers, I, I've never been on The Simpsons. I know Nancy and Dan, uh, Nancy Cartwright, who's Bard, and Dan Castellaneta, who's Homer, very well. I've known them for many, many, many years. I've never worked with uh, uh, Hank Azaria. I love his work. I've met him a couple of times. Uh, we were represented by the same agency for a while, but I'd love to work with Hank. He is really good. Harry Shearer, too, another Simpsons guy. Really incredibly gifted talent, um, and I've never had the pleasure of working with Harry. Um, but... Uh, I I have to say I, I work with the most gifted, in my estimation, the most gifted actors in Hollywood pretty much every week, and so I've gotten I've, you know when I was a kid all the people with whom I was fortunately surrounded ended up being pretty remarkable talents you know I I sort of learned how to do stuff with 
Phil Hartman and John Paragon and and uh, Corey Burton and Tress McNeil and all these, you know, really great people who were kind of... Phil was much more established. He was a bit older than I, but he was terrifyingly inspiring. You know, it was really inspiring, and they would terrify me because I thought, there's no way I can do what he does. And what Phil was so great... He's a lovely man, incredibly gifted, but he was so... Uh, uh, supportive. You say, no, dude, that's, that's really funny. That's eh, This didn't work, but this really works. You know, go for it. So I was really grateful to have those people around me, and now it, it, I understand why that was a really good thing. Um, so I have to say that I, I, I've already worked with pretty much the best of the best. Many of them have already passed away, and they were, you know, older than I and, and were inspiring to me when I got here, but... Um, there are always new people coming to the folks on on Rick and Morty. I've gotten to do four, three, four episodes of Rick and Morty. Oh my God, Justin Roiland and, and Dan Harmon and, and their group are so smart, so clever, and they're uh, Justin especially is a relative kid. I think he's thirty two or thirty three. So bright, and I had him on my podcast uh, a week ago. Uh, th- three guys from the show and. Their story is great. Another typical Hollywood story where they pitched it and pitched it, and people said, no, not interested, not interested. And finally somebody bit, and boom! Everybody loves Rick and Morty. And they should. It's great. It is fantastic. Oh, my God. It's irreverent. (laughs) It's weird. The first lines I had on Rick and Morty were, where are my testicles, Summer? I thought, oh, I'm home. Now I've found a home. Now I can, now I know why these guys are so good. Because they wrote lines like, where are my testicles, Summer? (laughs) And so I'm getting to work with the new best of the best, you know? These guys are going to be around for long after I'm dead and gone, and and I'm getting to work with them now. So it's an embarrassment of riches. I, I'm, I've been pretty... I keep saying it, but it's the truth. I'm incredibly grateful and <laughs> humbled and fortunate to be with these folks. So with Rick and Morty, yeah. I, I have to ask, what's it like when you get a script for oh. Rick and Morty and you just pour through it. I, I imagine it's, it's a little bit of a trip. Totally. And and it makes you, when you read the script and they make you laugh out loud, then you know you really got some. Same thing happened with The Tick. The same thing happened with Pinky and the Brain. Um, Randy Rogel's music for Animaniacs, I would sit there, you know, learning United States, Canada, and I think, who writes this stuff? <laughs> How did he do this? I mean, it's a great big universe and we're all really puny. We're just tiny little specks about the size of Mickey Rooney. You might think that you're essential. Try inconsequential. It's a big universe, and you're not. <laughs> and that's 20-odd years ago. you know. So when you get stuff like that that's already clever and funny and uh, kind of um, gets your attention right on the page, then it's a really – not only is it is it inspiring, but it's a kind of a challenge to say, is my talent up to the level of this writing? I want to do this justice. And uh, so, yeah, Rick and Morty is a great example of that. The scripts are just great and really funny, just on their own. Um, uh, it is exactly what you said. It is a trip. And uh, I believe they're starting to write the ser- third season now. And I just saw a T-shirt today. Somebody sent me a thing, a link to T-Fury. There's a T-shirt with Snowball. <laughs> it says, where are my testicles, Summer? With his little mech suit. With his little mech suit. Yeah. And I'm, oh, my God. I'm I'm so thrilled that that there's a great example that's a sort of lesser known oddball character that already has t-shirts being made about it (laughs) crazy world 
Yeah. No, it's it, yeah. That is a show that is going to stand the test of time. Totally. And the season three cannot come soon enough. Yeah. So you you mentioned that when you read that script and you're like, I, it's challenging thinking about whether or not you're up to the task. What would you say is your most challenging role that you've ever done? Um, probably the mask because I got to be Jim Carrey for a whole lot less money. And um, we did, I think, three seasons of The Mask. So I was the Stanley Lipkiss slash mask character. That was probably the most challenging because in every episode, Stanley puts on the mask and takes on different personas, whether it's a chef, a French chef, or a, a pirate, or a cowboy, or who knows, politician, you name it. Um, and so it was bouncing off the walls a lot, and, and I got to do a lot of improv on that. The coolest thing about that show to me was that I got to sing the theme song. The theme song from The Mask was written by Keith Baxter and arranged by uh, Christopher Neil Nelson, and it is a fantastic opening theme. It's a one-minute, great bebop jazz, and and it was really nice. The lady that used to be the head of CBS TV uh, for kids, Judy Price, uh, I did the demo, and they were going to hire a celebrity to sing it, and she said, well, who's that? And they said, well, it's Rob... Well, he's the mask. Let him sing it. And I, thank you so much for letting me do that because it really turned out great. That was that was one that was very challenging. Um, there, in terms of being onerous on my throat, there's a really great character I love doing. Um, recurring character on um, Fairly Odd Parents called Mark Chang, who's this sort of surf dude who's in love. With, I love that you're laughing. Are you just doing that because it's your job? <laughs> no, thank because you. Because I know that character. Yeah, you went to school with him at Pepperdine. <laughs> Totally. No way. No, I'm just kidding. Um, she's a wave. She went to Pepperdine. I even took a surfing class. Excellent. So that is one character that's hard on my throat. I can I because uh, Butch Hartman, the producer of the show, likes that he's so like over the top all the time, dude. And so that that tears me up a bit. But um, yeah, those two are pretty um, um, are good examples of characters that were that were challenging in terms of the. Um, uh, of delivering the goods on every episode with the mask, and then the other one was just trying to do it, you know, get done with it before you blow your brains out, uh, blow your voice out. <laughs> well, and you did his dad, too. You did. Yeah, that's right. I was Mark Chang's <laughs> father. I'm kind of doing a, a kind of a Ted Knight. Oh, Lou. Yeah, I was doing, come on, come here, Mark. It's kind of a cross between um, Ted Knight and, uh, let's see, Paul Ford. Um, but, yeah, and Lorraine Newman was my wife and Mark's <laughs> mother. We are Queen Jip Joriolak. <laughs> And uh, King Grippalon <laughs> and Mark Chang. And we were from Yugopotamia. <laughs> that was it. Right, which is just south of Norca in the California desert. So speaking of Butch Hartman, oh, one, one show that he worked on uh, was Danny Phantom. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure you did every other ghost character in that I was, series. Yeah, I was uh, uh, Jack, Jack Fenton, Danny's father, kind of a kind of a cheesy Robert Stack sort of character. I was Danny's father, Jack. And then I got to be Technus, which was a ripoff of uh, um, uh, Gilbert Gottfried. I don't know if they even approached Gilbert because I already aced him out of a job. Right. Um, and then I got to be the Bax Ghost, which sounds a lot like PJ. Um, so thank God. Beware. Yeah, beware! <laughs> yeah, thank you that you know that. I'm so glad. Um, but yeah, and Butch has been so good to me. He hired me on that show. He hired me on, uh, um, oh God, uh, uh, the one that, um, oh my goodness, I'm sorry, I just lost my train of thought. But anyway, he, uh, uh, um, uh, hush, uh, hush puppy, tough puppy. 
Tough Puppy. He did that one, too, and my son got to work with me on that show. He's one of the uh, uh, production folks on that show. Butch has been really great. We met at Hanna-Barbera, oh, God, 25 years ago, and he hired me for a couple of uh, short cartoons, and he's been very generous to me. Really good guy. So, again, since you've been so experienced and you've gotten the chance to work with so many great people, actors, directors, is there anything that you know now that you wish you had known when you first got started? You know, I wish I had known that... uh, if you are passionate and you put the work first and you put your passion first or that I put my passion first and not worry about making money, that I would have saved myself a whole lot of heartache and a whole lot of of anxiety. Um, I don't think that's unusual when you're trying to break into something that you want so desperately. And those of you out there who say that to me when they come up and meet me, these lovely, lovely people that I meet all around the world. Um, they say, oh, my God, I want so badly. And I get it because I still feel the same way. I have the same Jones to perform at 59 that I did at 19. That is absolutely the God's truth. Um, but I, re- I remember clearly that when I, I – the first on-camera audition I went on for a commercial live action, I got it. And it turned out to be a series of commercials for Jack in the Box – so I thought, oh, my God, what's so – struggling for your art? Are you kidding me? This is, I've been here for a year and a half. I got an agent. I'm, boom. I'm getting residual. This is great. Well, then there was a drive period. And because I'd had this sort of little uh, uh, kind of uh, jolt of an influx of money – I started to be very concerned about, oh, my God, if I get this pilot, I might get a series, and then I'm going to map. And I really lost sight for a while of what it was that got me to California, what it was that made me sell whatever I had in my young life at, at 22, or the first time I left was 19 to join a theater company, and move out to California. And it was the passion to perform. It wasn't the money. None of us do this for money. You're not doing this for money. I literally, mean, literally, no. <laughs> you're doing that. But even so, even the things that you're passionate about, you don't do it for money. I don't care whether it's flower arranging or working in a garage or doing body work or being an actor. You do it if it's if it satisfies your soul. That's why you do it. And I remember ultimately making a conscious decision to not put the cart so far before the horse, just to say, you know what? Whatever talent I have available to me at this moment, I'm going. That is what is ultimately going to get me a paycheck not worrying about the money first. And I spent so much time worrying about whether I'd want to pay my rent. And I even went through it as recently as four or five years ago. I had a period that was slow, and I fell into that trap again, my own trap, of, oh, my God, what have I done? A mortgage. Now it's, the stakes are bigger. Now nah, blah, 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 all this stuff. And you know what? I finally distilled it down and said, wait a minute. You're not, you, you, you know, you're here. You're established. Let, let's, you're having a slow period. Think. Be creative. You know, don't worry about that. And as soon as I focused my energy again on being creative, the podcast happened. I started being more careful, uh, more, uh, um, uh, uh, less worried about things taking care of itself, um, of themselves. And I started booking more work and I booked Ninja Turtles again because I was, I was focused on what I love about being a performer. And, and I've been rich and I've been poor and rich is way better. No question about it. <laughs> but the, the, the way for me to end up having money in the bank is to be focused on how much I really love performing and the people with whom I perform, yeah, big, big stuff. 
That's fantastic. Thank you. Hopefully everybody can take a little bit away from that. Yeah. So do you have any upcoming, we're running a little short on time, but okay. do you have any upcoming projects I do. that you can talk about? I know NDAs make it kind of tough. Oh, no, I'm good about I'm good there. I, uh, I have... Uh, um, uh, where we just started recording season five of Ninja Turtles. Yes! So you haven't even started on four yet. <laughs> we got another whole season coming. Uh, I'm uh, doing um, a bunch, bunch of cool stuff for uh, for Netflix. Um, um, DreamWorks is doing 12 separate shows just for Netflix. And I'm doing uh, Veggie Tales and with Tress McNeil and I. Um, we're uh, doing uh, um, the spinoff of uh, Penguins of Madagascar, which is called King Julian. Um, it's just great. There's so much great stuff out there. Uh, for the little kids, I do Doc McStuffins, and I do uh, uh, The 7D, which is a, a produced by Tom Ruger, who created Animaniacs. And if you'll indulge me, because I have a podcast, we're doing a... Have I got, have I got two minutes? Yes. Okay. This is really going to be fun, because for those of you who are fans of Pinky and the Brain, and you happen to be in the Los Angeles area, or are going to be... We have a podcast. We do them once a month at the Improv on Hollywood, the legendary Improv. And we are going to be doing a screening of the Pinky and the Brain Christmas special, which you said you liked, right? I did. It makes you cry. <laughs> Dear it, Santa. You get a little it misty. It is. You get a little misty. It's a very sweet little show. We're going to be screening a Pinky and the Brain Christmas at the Improv on Tuesday, December 2nd at 8 p.m. for Toys for Tots. So come and bring an unwrapped toy, and you will be able to get a, 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 a specifically for the event made, however I said that, um, uh, piece, which Maurice and I will sign, it's, it, and you guys will get that, and you come in, and we're going to watch Pinky and the Brain, Maurice LaMarche, my, uh, the Brain, and I will be hosting it, and I even wrote a little song in, for, for the season, here we go, it's to the tune that we will recognize the, the song, I didn't write the, li- the, the music, I wrote the lyric, and it goes something like this, world premiere, this is for you, my darling. <clears throat> How do you do? My name is Pinky, and even though I'm kind of stinky, we've got a big show, and you are to go. You'll be narfing in an improv wonderland. Brain and I will do the hosting, and you all might do some toasting. Toys for Tots gets the gifts from you working stiffs. Bring one to the improv wonderland. We all, we, we all will watch our lovely Christmas special with Pinky and the Brain and tons of joy. And when the evening's over, well, I guess you'll drive home and as our Jewish friends say, Oi, what fun, December 8th. That's a Tuesday, some food and fun, and perhaps a little booze day. 8 p.m. is the time, this right here's the last rhyme. We'll be narfing in an improv wonderland. There you go. Yeah. So, oh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's a big crowd outside. <laughs> so, your live studio audience. Thank you. Yeah. Well, that will that that was the uh, uh, hopefully will um, inspire you to, to to come see the kind of odd wackiness that you will uh, you will see with my friend the brain and myself on Tuesday, December eighth. So, and you can find my uh, the Rick and Morty podcast that I did last week is now up on on iTunes right now. So you can go. Check out my podcast, which is um, uh, Talkin' Tunes, T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe, T-O-O-N-S, and you can get it on iTunes, uh, or you can get it at my website, Rob Paulson, P-A-U-L-S-E-N, live. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Yakko Pinky, Y-A-K-K-O-P-I-N-K-Y. Um, and um, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Well, thank 
thank you so much. Oh, honey, so it's my pleasure. Thank for... you. You're just delightful. Oh, no. Go away. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Are you kidding? I'm sitting here trying not to geek out. Oh, go ahead so and geek I out. I will be buying my ticket for December. Oh, 8th. no, no, no. You, you'll have to buy yours. You're taken care of. <laughs> oh, my no God. problem. We'll take care of you. I, I know people down <laughs> no, yeah. no big deal. No big deal. Um, well, thank you again. My pleasure. So, sweetie. so much for joining thank us. You. Absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. You guys can follow me on Twitter at the Menguin and on Instagram. Menguin. <laughs> yeah. I love that. That's T-H-E-M-E-N-G-U-I-N. Nice. Good for you. <laughs> and if you guys, again, haven't already done so, please rate and subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, SoundCloud, all that fun stuff. We love hearing from you guys, and we want to hear what you guys have to say. So thank you guys so, so much for tuning in. Thank you again. My pleasure. <laughs> Happy will, holidays. <laughs> we will see you all next time. Thank you. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. From a different angle, a different tangent. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 